0: Hello, humans. Happy early full moon in Gemini. That's coming in hot this Saturday, December 18th. This full moon sounds like a juicy one, full of adventure and perhaps even some particularly good fortune which I don't know about you, but I could really use. I'm so hopeful that 2022 is going to have a wildly different energy than 2021, because damn, has this year been a doozy for me. And I know many of you as well. 2021 has been way harder than 2020, which was surprising to me. 2020 seemed to be the year that, like, the shit hit the fan, but I think 2021 has been harder because it's the reintegration after the shit hitting the fan, so 2022, I'm coming for you. I am super pumped about my guest this week, Michelle Belanger, who many of you have heard of or seen on some of your favorite paranormal TV shows. Michelle is an occult expert, psychic, educator, media personality, and author of over 30 books on paranormal and occult topics. 30 books! She's a major researcher, and she's also a vampire. I've been wanting to chat with Michelle since I first saw her work on one of my favorite paranormal shows, Portals to Hell. For those of you who think you heard that wrong, let me assure you, Yes, I did say vampire. There are, in fact, thousands of modern-day vampires that live all over the world and practice various ways of feeding, including the most commonly referenced way, by drinking blood. Those types of vampires are called sanguine vampires, and they feed by drinking human and or animal blood. Michelle is not a sanguine. She identifies as an energy or psychic vampire and does not feed by drinking blood, but still needs to feed off of others to get necessary sustenance. If your brain is exploding with curiosity, I feel you. This is a whole realm of the woo I had yet to tackle until earlier this year. And let me tell you, it is such an incredible rabbit hole to launch yourself into. Stephanie Bingham who has been on Follow the Woo multiple times now, episode 22, 32, and 38 so far, introduced me to one of Michelle's most popular books, The Psychic Vampire Codex, which I didn't just read. I consumed, which is very vampiric of me, in like two days because it entirely blew my mind. From then on, I knew I had to interview Michelle. And Dig into her amazing brain and ask some of the questions that started swirling around my mind. In part one of this two part interview, we talk about Michelle's woo background, when her first vampiric tendencies kicked in, the vampire house she created, House Keparu, the different kinds of vampire casts, reincarnation, the reality or lack thereof, really, of paranormal TV shows inhuman entities, and more. Honestly, I could talk to Michelle forever, and I still have about 4,000 questions for her regarding vampires and the land of Wu in general. I have a few notes for you regarding this episode. Number one, the term edgelord pops up a few times. This is generally someone who expresses opinions that are super nihilistic or contain references to other taboo topics which are deliberately intended to shock or offend people. Two, Michelle references the satanic panic, and just in case you don't know what that is, it was a moral panic that consisted of over like 12,000, I think, unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse, and that started in the 1980s and spread throughout many parts of the world by the late 90s. The satanic panic originated in 1980 with the publication of Michelle Remembers, and it's a book co-written by Canadian psychiatrist Lawrence Pasder and his patient and future wife, Michelle Smith which used the discredited practice of recovered memory therapy, which was basically like a combination of hypnosis and other modalities kind of like that. And they made these sweeping claims about satanic ritual abuse. The allegations involved reports of physical and sexual abuse of people in the context of occult or satanic rituals. And in its most extreme form, these allegations involve a conspiracy of like a global satanic cult that includes the wealthy and powerful world elite in which children are abducted or bred for human sacrifices, pornography, and prostitution. If you heard my episode on Sherry Schreiner's doomsday cult, which is episode 13, you'll note that some form of this panic is still occurring today. I just pulled that from the Internet to kind of give you a concise overview of the satanic panic. But we have referenced it so many times in past episodes that if you're wanting to get into it more, I really do recommend researching further because it's a fascinating phenomena that is happening. And I think it says a lot about humans and their fears, really. Number three. We've talked about the jinn before, which Michelle brings up, but just in case you missed it, the jinn are supernatural creatures from early pre Islamic Arabian religious systems and later in Islamic mythology and theology. The jinn are not innately good or evil. They also may represent several pagan beliefs integrated into Islam. And Michelle's is not the first guest who I've talked to about overlap among the different entities, you know, fae, jinn, aliens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Number four, Thelema. In case you forgot, that is an esoteric and occult philosophy and religious movement developed in the early 90s by Alistair Crowley. And he was a writer, a mystic, and a ceremonial magician. You've probably heard references to Crowley in many, many episodes of Follow the Woo. So I'm just reminding you. Number five. About 35 minutes in, I do say people incarnate together, but I meant to say reincarnate. I got so excited by our conversation that I may have jumbled a few of my words. Finally, it seems especially timely for this episode to be released because Anne Rice, the best-selling author of The Vampire Chronicles, passed away on December 11th of this year, just a few days ago. I can't imagine you've never heard of her, but if The Vampire Chronicles' title doesn't ring a bell, perhaps Interview with the Vampire does. These episodes and their titles are dedicated to Anne Rice and her glorious storytelling abilities. Rest in peace and power, Anne Rice. On to part one of my interview with a vampire, Michelle Belanger. There's so many things that I want to talk with you about. I don't know where to fucking begin.
1: (laughs) I encounter this problem regularly. Like, dive in and let's see where the conversation takes us.
0: Well, you're so prolific. And I've only scratched the surface. Like, I was just looking through my heavily dog-eared, The Psychic Vampire Codex, which this book fucked me up, Michelle. (laughs) Do you hear that often? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you do. Okay. Well, that's comforting. So mm-hmm. I met Stephanie through the podcast and she recommended this book because she was like, you got a vibe. I think you'll really like this book. And I was like, fuck you, Stephanie. This book <laughs> destroyed me. <laughs> I Brilliant. read it in Yeah, it was like 48 hours. I was through it. I stayed up all night, one night reading it. And my partner was like, what happened to you? And I was like, I honestly don't know. Do you get random people who just come to you and say, hey, I read this book and I feel like my brain is fried? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how Um, do you respond to that?
1: Well, with as much care as I can, if I have the, the time, like I, I either, you know, answer the questions or like point them in a direction of like where to get some answers for the questions. It's helpful that there's a pretty big network at this point, because I've been doing this oh God, since the very early 90s. So I know a lot of people are like, hey, I don't have time to answer that question. But if you trust my recommendation, reach out to this person and they can totally like give you some input and give you a, a chance to kind of chat about that. The Psychic Vampire Codex was, so there were a lot of books that I could have written and published before that, but it felt like the one that I needed to wait to be like the first third party published, my first kind of big thing. I'd I'd done a lot of self-publishing. I'd done a lot of stuff in the underground zine culture prior to that, but I didn't see anyone else with a bead on this particular thing. Mm. And not like an ethical one like there there were a lot of occult groups that are like here learn to be a vampire and prey upon people with your mind and (laughs) i always a little too edgelord for my taste and I am an old school goth
0: (laughs) yes I've heard I purchased your shadow work class and and you mentioned that in in that class and I think you made a joke something like goths are like the masters of shadow work or something like Mm. that yeah
1: sitting in the corner being all broody about it yeah Mm -hmm.
0: totally i think what's interesting is literally everything about that book i really and a lot of my listeners are gonna i know they're on the same page here they have like no fucking clue about the vampire vampire community at all except Mm -hmm. for what we see on tv twilight true blood and that there was some like maybe ancient folklore about blood-sucking beasts mm. so when when i started talking with stephanie and she gave me this book i was like wait a second now i had already known that there, w- there was another group there were people who identified as vampires and mm-hmm. i knew some of them actually did drink blood. And I was like, that's cool. Do what you got to do. Like if that's fun for you. But I didn't know how deep the rabbit hole went. Mm. I think that's where I called it a frenzy. I just went into this Mm. like frenzied state where I was like questioning everything, especially like how many of the vampires are there and where do they congregate and all of that. I mean, I don't, I don't even know where to be- begin. I'm just sort of telling you what happened to me, <laughs> mm. but I guess I want to back up before we go into the full vampire thing. Cause that's going to be a major rabbit hole. And I want to talk about like your background. You, you were a young brooding goth. When did you find out you were a vampire and and wh- how did you get into the woo in general, mm. so to speak?
1: I was pretty much born into woo. I don't know that I would have
0: <laughs> had a chance
1: to not have an incredibly weird life. So both sides of my family have a history of like, just folks are psychic, have, you know, visions, have dreams that come true. And I was raised by my grandmother, who was um, Irish American, and you kind of can't have Irish-American without a whole lot of very interesting mythology and mysticism. The idea of like the second sight and fairies and things like that. One of the things to know about me is that I was born with a heart defect that gave me a life expectancy of five years. Um, It was the early 70s and the ability to repair this was was just starting to become a, a thing and it was still experimental. So I survived the surgery and was the first at the hospital here to do so. Possibly the first in the state. Um, My family, I mean, I remember hearing stories about it. I, I know it was a really big deal. And that sort of like multiple brushes with death. But also how my family treated me like an adult. Like we had really deep conversations even as a child, like even as a tiny person. Because I was having experiences then, but I didn't think of them as weird or occult. It was once I went to school that I started to recognize that not everybody's family spoke so openly about ghost experiences or psychic experiences. And my psychic identity and my vampiric identity are interwoven. They're, they're the same thing. They come from the same place. Uh, and that was the one thing that seemed, there's a spoiler later, seemed like it was unusual for my family because everybody was like, you know, they see ghosts, they like have dreams that come true, but nobody seems to have the interaction that I did with energy and with not only sensing it in people, but being able to connect to it, harness it and take it and seeming to have a need to do that. And I was doing that. And this is, weird and ridiculously precocious, but I was doing stuff like that from first grade on. I remember finding ways to manipulate other students into letting me feed off of them, which is also one of the things that started to give me a good sense of ethics because as a young person with no structure, no boundaries, I made a lot of mistakes. I screwed some people up because there was no sense of like what this really was. It was just working off of instinct. When I went to college, I've always been a reader and a voracious one, uh, was when I started to get access to uh, metaphysical books, books on witchcraft, not just, you know, time-life books about like the study of the occult world, but actual practitioners writing, this is how I do occultism. This is how I do magic. This is how I do energy work. And although it is a dated book and it has its problems, Dion Fortune's Psychic Self-Defense was the first place that I found the word psychic vampire. I didn't like her take on it because she was very certain that absolutely everybody who had this ability was just automatically a bad person, was automatically a predator, and there was only ever framed in a negative light. And I struggled with that a little bit. I mean, I'd already hit on the word vampire at that time. And I mean, vampires have this huge bunch of folkloric baggage and pop culture baggage. So as like a preteen and a middle teen going, I think I'm a vampire, but I don't sleep in coffins. So what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. So seeing that... It could be a psychic thing, that it could be something that was expressed not just through an undead, risen corpse feeding off of the blood of the living or or whatever. That was an eye-opener. And also in reading her book and objecting strenuously to the sense that this was automatically negative really is what inspired me to start putting the codex together,
0: Mm.
1: to go, all right, this... This doesn't seem like it's some sort of like, you know, oh, terrible edgelord curse. Like, this is just how my energy works. And this is how I relate to the world around me. And what does that look like? And also, how do I save other people from stumbling around in the dark and doing some of the silly stuff that I did as a kid? And honestly, the potentially dangerous stuff. In that, I agree with with Fortune. If somebody is unconscious about it, if they are untrained, if they haven't really gotten their shit together they can be a universal pain in the neck to be funny about it, but (laughs) really they can be problematic to people. Pain in the neck.
0: I like that. That's clever. (laughs) The question that so many people have is, and you touched on this is that are all vampires malevolent, like intrinsically malevolent. And I think that's, it's a lot like witches that we, you know, we have, it's still, we were just talking about this in a recent episode where, one of the Webster dictionary definitions for which still has the word evil in it. I mean, mm-hmm. like to this day. So I think, like you said, there is all of that baggage. You were going through this and learning this and you wanted to create the codex to sort of, I'm sure you had to do a bunch of research and kind of dig into that and read more and and meet different people to create that book. But I mean When did you start finding other people who were like you? Because that must have been like a very pivotal part of your growth.
1: That absolutely was. So this is where it's hard to separate my psychic identity and my vampiric identity and my goth identity, as well as the, the artsy stuff that I was doing. So I started up a gothic literary magazine in 1991 when I was in college because I was bored The college that I got a full ride to was just not challenging me. So I decided to just publish a magazine in my spare time. And on the surface, Shadow Dance was about fiction and poetry. It was very, very like syrupy goth, deeply dark. Like, I don't really like to read poetry anymore because I read, I I would get stuff. It was an international magazine. It was ridiculously big for something that I was literally copy and pasting physically together on the floor of my dorm room
0: <laughs> it was the 90s <laughs> it, it was
1: the 90s that what you did? <laughs> put it all together with like little bits of tape and then you ran down to kinko's or someplace and then you you spread it out and uh i mean i had readers in i remember uh cairo and Osaka and uh, all over eastern europe western europe canada the u.s but again on the surface it was just fiction and poetry but everybody at that time was trying to find a way to explore their magical identities during the satanic panic when you really couldn't be out about that and although the witchcraft especially like the, the wicca movement was starting to be there and there was a lot of new age stuff going on from the 80s it was very white light very like light worker mm-hmm. so you were Still ostracized if there was even a tiny little hint of like, hey, I might like nighttime. So in reading people's stuff, it started to be obvious that some people were talking about real experiences or they were very thinly veiling autobiography in their short stories. So we started to uh, communicate and, and just have pen pal networks behind the scenes. And that started to grow into uh, an organization that I founded called the International Society of Vampires, the ISV, which ran from, well, probably 93 to 97. Uh, it overlapped a little bit with House Kepru. That was more a network of folks who identified with the vampire in some capacity. I didn't have any restriction on it like is it a magical identity do you find that you're a psychic vampire are you a blood drinker I I didn't care I wanted to give everybody a place to just talk about things so in a lot of ways it was like a physical version a newsletter version of of a forum an internet forum now like vampire reddit only we're doing it all through snail mail and exchanging one another's addresses and just talking about like hey this is what I experience this is what you experience That was not the only place at the time where that was happening. Independently across the country, uh, the vampire community was happening and is starting to come together from the late 80s to the early 90s. And the same thing was happening, was people were just like, hey, you look like maybe we should talk about this thing. And what's this experience like for you? And at that time, it was individuals or small groups interestingly very separate but parallel to the witchcraft community and the reason we were separate was although we had a lot in common and I know I tried to get involved in a couple of Wiccan and Pagan covens the we were too dark like like the very thought that there was vampirism that there was even having an association of like well I feel like I do more work with spirits and the dead and that was too much uh it's really hard The way things have changed now to put my brain back in what it was like back then, where I was literally barred from participating in circles with pagans because I was too dark. I had a Wiccan friend whose coven kicked him out simply because he came over and hung out with me. And they were convinced that I, as a vampire, would feed on all of their power through him. Like, it was ridiculous. That taught me a couple of things. The marginalized, who I assumed was, you know, we're all in this together. We're all on the outside, right? So we should all hang together. Actually, that's that's not often how that works. I'm not sure the vampire community would have developed as a community if the greater magical community at the time was not reacting with such an extreme pendulum swing to white light as a way of proving that they were legitimate in the face of the satanic panic.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a huge box of bullshit that you can talk about forever. And it's still, Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom was really into the new age movement in the 80s and the 90s. And I remember like all of the the people that she was communicating with at that time were, were so love and light only. And even as a kid or, you know, a teenager, I knew there was something wrong with that. I knew there was something fundamentally wrong with just the love and light. And now I still talk about it all the time on the podcast about the importance of shadow work and how Mm -hmm. I always say, fuck love and light. (laughs) Fuck it. Fuck it. I I love love. I love the light. Sure. But I think that that whole mantra, it has been so unkind. <laughs> it's been so disruptive to so many other communities, other ma- magical communities. But it's interesting that you said that that was actually like the impetus for mm. the the vampire community to become tighter and, and to sort of establish themselves more. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. We didn't really have anywhere else to express ourselves. We, we kind of existed in the spot where the Venn diagram converged between the, the Gothic subculture the BDSM and kink, queer subculture, mm-hmm. the New Age and pagan subculture, and also gaming, where you had the opportunity to put on different personalities and play with them. And a lot of queer people have their awakenings gaming, too, where like you play a character and you like realize that what you were like oh this seems like a very very fancy thing to try to be oh wait i think maybe i'm trans <laughs> like like that that yeah. that's the thing that happens like it gives you this chance where it's okay to play around and you give yourself permission because it's just play acting and then slowly you realize that what you're doing is bringing forth a part of yourself that you have never felt comfortable being honest about. Yeah. So anyway, we we existed in that part of the Venn diagram and it was because it just, it wasn't safe for us to be out really in any of those individually uh, as groups. Like in the BDSM community, there was such a thing as, as power exchange between a top and a bottom uh, yeah. and a dom and a sub. And also if you framed that into mystical, or, or if that sounded too woo, a lot of people pushed back. And at the same time, there were definitely folks like Grey Dancer, Lee Harrington, uh, Raven Caldera, all of whom freely were recognizing that there's shamanic elements going on here, there's magical elements going on here, there's vampiric elements, and one doesn't negate the legitimacy of the other. House Kepru from the ISV was, New York City was a fundamental point of the vampire community as a sociological phenomena as a culture that was deeply entrenched in a club culture as well so there were the, the vampires and also the folks who were very much just more into the aesthetic the vampire was to them what the cowboy is to somebody who's super into country western mm-hmm. <laughs> Where maybe they've never even seen a cow, but like they're super into that. So the 10 gallon hat and the enormous belt buckle and like like that whole aesthetic, but also the philosophy and the ideals like permeate Mm. because that's what we are as human beings. We tell stories and our art and our music and all of those things will express the values and, and kind of like who we would ideally like to be. So in New York City, uh, you had a, an underground club culture, uh, somewhat adjacent to the, the kink community, somewhat adjacent to the goth community, and with, woven throughout that were vampires. And it got big enough that you started to have clubs that were exclusively for the vampire community out there, and, or at least club nights. Folks would have things that they would wear to kind of like pick one another out, areas where you had VIP rooms and things. And that started to make it a little bit more concrete as an actual community. And it started to organize kind of like, I don't know, a federation of of witches' covens is the best way of, of looking at it. And that gained some momentum once the internet came about. And so we're talking 96, 97, where folks started to reach out very easily over state boundaries and in a way that allowed for a lot more communication, a lot swifter communication than what we had been doing in the zine culture. And suddenly there was an international vampire community of of people going, yeah, I've got a little group over here. I've got a little group over here. Uh, What are our shared values? And I don't know it was really interesting to be on the ground level of all of
0: that. Well, it was also this amazing fertile ground for um collecting anecdotal evidence. And right? I mean you were able to listen to so many different people's ideas about what it meant to be a vampire. And just so my listeners understand I know that you divide vampires up in the psychic vampire codex into three casts, and that's your world that's non, you don't drink blood. But then there's also a whole other world of vampires that do drink blood. And how did, like, how do you, do you communicate with them? Are y'all copacetic with each other? You know, like, is it like, cool? So
1: in 1997, when I face planted into the online aspect of the vampire community, uh, most of the folks who identified as vampires, especially in that New York crew, uh, and it was very influential, were either blood drinkers or were uh, what we call lifestylers. And again, those are the ones where the vampire is to them what the cowboy is to a country country western person. Where they Got it. they had you know full full on like vampire cosplay. Mm -hmm. only more like this is also my identity. Like I'm going to wear fangs, I'm going to wear contacts, I'm going to like have this be part of my aesthetic as much as possible during whatever part of my life and it informs my philosophy and my personal beliefs, etc. So those are lifestylers. They may not be vampiric, they may not drink blood, but the pop culture idea of the vampire as this alluring, immortal, very... Sexually and sensually free, often androgynous, or at least outside of binary gender, like that was a big part of it, mm. and a big appeal for a lot of people was the vampire was inherently queer, in many respects. That wasn't to say that you didn't have you know cisgendered straight people in the community. But that transgressive nature of the vampire as we see it in fiction and in film definitely informed some of the allure to especially the lifestylers. The blood drinkers crossed over a little bit more with the kink community, although they were they will always be very quick to say it's not a fetish. There's a sense that there is a need, that this is something that is fulfilling a, a deep quality of, of like who they are. And the blood drinkers themselves are split between uh, what you can think of as mystical sangs, sanguine vampires, and medical medsangs, where some of them are no woo, no woo at all, no psychic anything. There's no such thing as energy. It is all just nuts and bolts, physical stuff. And they are literally drinking blood to meet a medical need, which they generally believe science might catch up to being able to figure out like why they have this need. Mm-hmm. It's a very materialist approach, and they tend to be atheistic or at least non-theists. But also, you've got the other sanguinarians for whom blood is a carrier of energy, and it's a, this, this ritual exchange, and this kind of intense psychic and, and mystical communion, the main thing to take away about when we say vampire community. It's a little bit like saying pagan or which community, mm-hmm. because you have such a vast diversity, like each individual person's interpretation and expression tends to be unique to them. And by definition, the community encourages that, that right. we are understand like who we are and what we are and express that in a way that is comfortable for us.
0: Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this whole process and and you're meeting these different people and you've got all of these different ideas and people are, like you said, each individual has their own way of how they express it and how they define it. And it can get a little hairy, but I imagine you found patterns because that's what it seems like I read in, in the book. What was it like when you met someone who fed like you specifically, you know, w- how you explained when you were a kid and you knew that you were, you were sort of naturally doing that What from first grade on.
1: If I had only been contacting people through email or physical mail, I'm not sure I would have had the aha moment, but interacting with some folks like in person and mm-hmm. there's there's a sense of of connection of like recognition when you see someone like hands on doing a thing. I'm, I'm not sure how to put it into words. Like I, I made up terms to explain it like this beacon, this sort of like mm-hmm. Highlander effect of like walking into a space. And you know, when you're psychic, you pick up a lot of things about people. And although you can't necessarily like diagnose every psychic around you, if somebody else is kind of resonating on the same level that you are, It's not uncommon for your attention to be drawn to them, for there to be this sort of like sense of like, I should have a conversation with that person. Mm. And I was definitely starting to recognize that, you know, I'd go to an SCA event or I'd go to the goth club or I'd be in class and somebody would catch my attention. I would spend some time going, okay, why, why does my gaze get drawn over there? Like, what's going on with that? And just picking that apart and going, okay, is it because of the way they look? Is it this? Is it that? And when I had no physical reasons, I had to get over the fact that I'm an incredibly shy person, can't tell anymore, and that, that social anxiety of like, just go up and talk to them. You know, how do you start that conversation was always fun of like, hey, <laughs> hi. Uh, uh, hello. I will say that the most hilarious experience I had of that from the reverse was I was using the computers at the local library in 1997 when a bunch of high schoolers who were meeting at the library after class just like I saw a little nod of them and I'm just you know trying to answer my email and I hear you know and they're just they're all like you know stealing glances and like just not being subtle at all about it and I kind of like just kind of clock them out of the corner of my eye and watch them basically play rock paper scissors until some of, someone pulls the short straw and has to come up and go talk to me
0: uh-huh.
1: and he very very awkwardly like sidles up to where i'm at and he's like uh uh that's a neat ring you have <laughs> uh, do you practice magic you seem really interesting there's something about your energy we can tell i <laughs> just, just <laughs> word vomit so i'm like Yes. And how old are you? And <laughs> <laughs> hang on a second. This is a lot. But also recognizing, like, I remember being that kid. Uh, I remember having, being absolutely certain that there was no one I could ever ask those questions to openly. Mm. Uh, and I think a lot of us go through that for various aspects of marginalized identity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I set up an arrangement with them. I was like, okay, it's, it's a public library. I'm here for internet access and things. If you guys are here and you want to just sit and ask me questions for 30 minutes when I'm in town or when I'm around here, cool, but you're not coming over to my house. We're not doing anything (laughs) private out in public where people can see, uh, because I just don't want any
0: like weird, anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good boundaries.
1: (laughs) Necessary boundaries. Again, just coming off of the satanic panic where it didn't matter if you weren't doing terrible things. If they Mm. thought you were doing terrible things, you could still end up on death row like David Nichols.
0: Yes. Yeah. I just went down that rabbit hole recently. Yeah. It's a fascinating story. So when you met people who you said it was kind of hard to put into words, what it was like to be around people, you kind of had to physically be around them and feel what they were doing. When I first got into a group of, people that were just as weird as me it was so heartwarming it was this mm. buoyancy you know there was this feeling of like wow you can kind of do anything it felt so empowering now you had already had the poetry magazine and all of that but when you really got into working with other people energetically did I guess that's when House of keperu came right is that when it yeah. felt like your family yeah
1: so it's almost like psychic ASMR, like that, that, <laughs> like you like suddenly get chills because, like, there's this something hitting you on a level that it's about being seen. All of us have many aspects to our personality. There's different things that we like. And, you know, if you're like super into collecting baseball cards and you find somebody else who's into that, like you <laughs> connect on some level. But also, there's probably layers to your personality and things. And the question is, is like, what's most important to you? Like, what lives at your heart? what's the secret core of you that you're afraid will never be seen. And that moment where you run into one or two or five people who've been harboring the same thing, and suddenly you realize you can be yourself unreservedly uh, around them. There's a deep magic to that. So connected with my psychic stuff, the vampiric stuff, was trying to figure out like where, where did this come from? Like I was born this way and, and why? Uh, I'd had past life memories from the time I was tiny as well. That's a whole other journey. Again, all intertwined. But in developing my particular beliefs about vampirism, based also on like observations and conversations that I had, I don't think that everybody who's vampiric is you know a reincarnated soul that carries that on them, hmm. but. I became convinced that at least some of us were, that this was something that we were, like on a deep, profound level over cycles of lifetimes. And if that was true, I told myself, there had to be people who were, you know, not merely like me, but who were connected, that we had been, you know, lost over time. We would, you know, feasibly recognize one another. I'm also kind of inherently skeptical is again not that you can tell from from you know where yeah. I'm sitting now but you know I'm, I'm in college I'm getting a degree in uh, comparative religious studies with a concentration in psychology of religion like I've, I've got a background in like exactly how much our brains tend to lie to us why we develop the beliefs that we do how those beliefs can be detrimental or even weaponized and I didn't want to slip into what I saw way too many people doing at the time from from the new age uh groups to the like the little like edgelord occultist groups where they just everything was everything. Like you met somebody and you thought she was attractive and therefore you were you had crossed oceans of time. Like to the point where it was a cliche in college where you'd end up with these little knots of like little occult group people who just manage to feed themselves this sort of self-perpetuating story and you just watch them go down some pretty deep rabbit holes without any objectivity the past life stuff seemed like the sketchiest like the, the most hard to prove and, and hard to be 100 percent certain about i wrote down as much as i could in terms of where did i think this came from and what did i think that meant and there were several things if i met people and it felt like I didn't only resonate with them, like I recognized them, like it felt like they were somebody that was tied in on that deep level. I wouldn't be like, hey, I think you're blah, blah, blah (laughs) from ancient Sumer. Like like it it wasn't like that. You'd have conversations in slow stages, uh, an unfolding, which Mm -hmm. always feels like the healthiest way to explore mutual beliefs. Uh, You know, those late night 3 a.m. conversations where it usually starts with, I know this is going to sound weird, but
0: yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I know them well. So I wrote down,
1: if I had observations or memories about people, I would write that out. I would usually seal it in an envelope and date it. And if that person hit a point where they started to go, Hey, you know, I haven't wanted to talk about this, but I think I recognize you from this. Mm. I would be, all right, before you go on, write yours down and I'll give you mine.
0: Interesting. That's a fascinating way to do it. I mean, how did that work for you? I really didn't expect
1: it to work uh, as well as <laughs> it did. Like at the time I was really leaning toward, this is a personal narrative. You know, I, I understood that Religion and spirituality and myth, are, these are things that we as humans are compelled to craft, to give context to our experiences that don't otherwise have good answers. So I was 100% okay with this being just sort of the story I was telling myself to give shape to things that didn't make sense otherwise. It was a little astounding, the first and then the second, And then by the fifth time, it was like, well, this is a thing. But when you've got people who are independent of one another, come up with almost the same thing, or not word for word, like clearly two different perspectives of the same event. Hmm. Uh, For me, that's what convinced me to go, okay, so this reincarnation thing is, is not just pretty pictures in my head there's something going on here. This is, this is interesting. And there's, there is definitely a tie there, especially some of the like, like the, the weirder deep stuff that, you know, there's no way that we'd be able to like open a history book and hundred percent, you know, prove this. And also folks remember the same thing and in like key details uh, with house Kepru, that's actually some of the only stuff that's super secret in the group mm-hmm. is the things that we remember. And it's not secret because we're like, oh, we have to maintain our secret society mystique. Mm. It's more the easiest way for someone to feel validated is to come there themselves, write it down, and not have been front-loaded. Exactly. Not have had a chance where they could like just stumble across this like online or something. Mm. And
0: I think that's really interesting, and it, it validates your hypothesis that not every, maybe not every vampire is always a vampire, every incarnation, but that there are some that continually incarnate together and they are some kind of family, um, extended family. I I'd probably say, right. And do, do you have any idea just from your experience? I know you have everybody who's in the house of Keparu. But how many there might be out there that that you're specifically connected mm. to? Hundreds, I'm sure. Yeah, uh,
1: I've I've tried to like think about it because so so this gets into like the deep UPG weeds. Like like it feels like a soul group, and it feels like we were connected uh, at some some key points, and we connect ourselves to a temple. And you know there were a lot of folks involved in that at different levels of administration and participation. What I know is there are hundreds. and I'd feel bad at outing folks because we we, we ended up having in house Kepru to make a, a group that we call imasi, who are people who are not you know members of the house they've not owed to the house uh, for, for one reason or another. like there's Part, being part of a magical community right now is just not their thing or they've got their own things going on. They're, they're like heads of their own thing or they are otherwise very visible. And that would be a weird thing to come out to light depending on what their like life situation is. So it must be our folks that we recognize as connected to us and that we have that family feel who really the only obligation is if they have questions, we answer them. And if they're just like, hey, this, this is a weird thing, and I feel like there's there's something going on here, like, what, what's up with that? Uh, especially where it may impact how they perceive energy, how they interact with people around them, things like that. For, for House Kepuru to say that it's vampirism and only vampirism is grossly generalizing and simplifying, uh, something that's much more a unique way of interacting with energy.
0: Yes. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to understand that this is a certain lens and this is a a way of communicating via energy and I think some magical sects it feels like they kind of cut people out, but this very much does not feel that way. It feels like it is it is open-minded and and very inviting and inclusive, which is nice.
1: I know it's extra complicated because the vampire community at large directly, explicitly, and sometimes implicitly has been influenced by the stuff that I wrote for House Kepru, as well as ritual stuff that I wrote. And so you'll find the the sort of like tripartite version reiterated uh, under different names, sometimes misunderstood, I, I think. Of, of all of the aspects of my legacy, the, the thing that bothers me the most in the vampire community is within House Kepru, we uh, identify priest, warrior, and counselor, these three different ways of interacting with energy. Now, I, I named them based off of that sort of like mythic narrative of, you know, we were in service in a temple. And I think it might have been better served to explain more about like, what that is in terms of the relationship to energy, like like folks who are more grounding and protective, which are the warriors and counselors that are more empathic and connecting. And the priests who are more about like harnessing and directing energy to take some of the sense of a hierarchy out of it, because where I've seen a few groups take it is they really bake a hierarchy into it mm. and they, Take the the priests as like very much like, you know, I am Grand High Puba, I am in charge of everyone, all of the rest of you are beneath me. And the most toxic expression of that has been to put the folks who are counselors into an automatic role of almost like energetic slaves Mm. to sexualize their role. I rankle at it. It's it's something that I've seen in a couple of groups. I've I've spoken out against it pretty pretty vociferously, but it's it's not the direction it was intended, but it's definitely a direction that some people take it in. We're especially the ones that are just like, I'm a vampire, I'm an edgelord, ha. Ah,
0: yeah. Kneel at my feet. Yeah, I feel like that's more of a a patriarchal, sort of masculine approach, this hierarchical, you know, system essentially. And then yours, I was thinking this as I was reading the book, felt very, very receptive, very feminine. And it did feel like everybody kind of had their place and nobody was the hot shit at the top, like bitch slapping the others, which was comforting because you do find that, I mean, in all the magical areas you know you find in covens that i've uh been in that i don't stay very long cuz i'm like i'm not going to be your bitch <laughs> like yeah. I, I don't think you're that cool or i don't think that how you're treating other people is appropriate at all and so i i can imagine that well of course it just crosses over to everywhere vampirism included and i can see how specifically counselors because i think if i were to identify it as a vampire, that would be me. I could see how they would so easily, they're the sort of like empaths of the group. They would just get stuck in that very toxic, uh, abusive situation very easily.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I really, truly have seen people use it as an excuse to more or less gaslight someone into being their sex slave not mincing words like like i i like I, I have a that i that i actively got out of a situation like that once it became once it was brought to my attention that somebody was using my book and my teachings as like this is this was their introduction to stuff and they like reached out in desperation of like i think i'm failing and here's this stuff and i'm so messed up and i'm like they're doing what
0: the, you're like that's what? not how it's supposed to be used <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, no, please. I I know. I think the difference was, you know, when I talk about like the triumvirate work like the the sharing between a priest and a warrior and a counselor like cycling energy like that, I'm thinking of a circle of people all on the same level, each of them more like a chord. So three notes in a chord and you end up with like this really neat harmonic and I I do have a musical background, so like that made sense to me, but I think some people read it and they're like, oh, this person is on top. And therefore that means they're in charge. And this person's Mm -hmm. on the bottom. That means that they're, and it's like, no, like you have all of those notes are important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're so screwed up. We, we do that. We automatically want to put it in, in that hierarchical order. Yeah. And the word priest has so much baggage, right? Mm -hmm. So that people are like, oh, I'm the priest, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I
1: have developed a keen, Understanding of how we front load ourselves just with language, mm-hmm. uh, it's the, the problematic aspect of the, the history and the connotation, the denotation of words. I mean, you know, vampire by itself. Like people are like, you're a vampire. You know, yeah. you're you're either like swooping around like Lestat, or like you know, creeping around <laughs> like Nosferatu. And like, what what does that mean exactly? Are you doing this for attention? I'm like, there's no better word there just isn't a better word right now in our language for someone who takes vital energy. So vampire it is.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's this isn't exactly the same. But a lot of times when I tell generally cis white men that I'm queer, and they're like, well, have you ever tried dick? You know, Mm. it's kind of like, wait a second. No, like this is, this is that's not how it works. Like this is who I am. It's not this like weird thing. It's like, they automatically put you into like, this is what you should be. And it seems like obviously not exactly the same, but kind of similar that, that people are just like, Oh, a vampire. Okay. No, like, Oh, you're this queer lady. Okay. Like,
1: actually I resonate with that because I'm, I'm intersex, but Let me explain that as I was coming to understand that I was intersex and like pursuing that as like, hey, I think that this is like medically something going on with me. The word was still hermaphrodite. Exactly. And language evolves. And we either abandon stuff that has too many negative connotations. We sort of collectively agree that that one we're done with, or we reclaim it like the witches have which is still in, you know, if we're talking about a folkloric witch, if you're talking about the Wicked Witch of the West, there is, you know, witches curse and witches do horrible things. And like the folk, the, the witches in stories and fairy tales are horrible beings. And depending on which culture you're talking about, witchcraft is still seen that way. And also there are plenty of folks who are practicing witches who it's a very different thing. That idea of reclaiming a term to either revitalize it or to rehabilitate it or, or honestly to just take it and be like, no, nah, no, nah. there's this one thing it has in common with how we are and mm-hmm. just we're just chucking.
0: Yeah, I'm big on reclamation of words, I think, which queer I mean, I hadn't thought about it until you blew my brain up with this book, but vampire also, I think that it's important for groups to reclaim those words and say, Hey, listen, we're redefining what they are for us. And yeah, it's just interesting to see it through a vampiric lens. I love the part that you said about the trifecta of the priest counselor and warrior and how it's music and that's how i thought of it too these these like bing 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 you know and it reminds me of witchcraft as well you know i mean it's mm-hmm. that that cycle that circle of energy that you're working with and i think that's really interesting that that's how you work i would love to be i know p- the pandemic has been hard to be around anyone but it would be so great to be in a room with a warrior and a priest and like feel what that's like. I imagine it's it's palpable that that exchange. I mean it and 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 probably I'm just like intuitively I'm feeling like it's probably like an immediate feeling. I know it's there.
1: It has a similar feel to it of like really intense ritual, but it's literally it could just be three people sitting in a circle and like just and, <laughs> and, and just suddenly, blah, 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 blah. Because of the pandemic, we've we, because House Capri particularly like we are a group that is much best. We are at our best in person. We don't need to touch one another physically to do energy work, but there's there's an organic quality of just like being able to be in the room to like read one another's body language to like you know check in with stuff like that, and it is certainly less intensive. It's not as hard if you're in the same space to visually see one another and connect energetically Uh, it takes a certain investment of energy a certain endurance to be able to do it at a distance it's not impossible to do energy work at a distance but it's a bit of an adjustment it's mostly a mental adjustment to like even realize that i mean it's energy so really does it have to be geographically focused like Mm. if you can connect to a person if you can use some sort of uh you know some sort of little object to like anchor yourself to them if you can use their image if you can use the sound of their voice in a zoom meeting you can connect and do ritual but it had a steep learning curve. <laughs> like,
0: I bet, yeah. I feel that way as well with the kind of work that I was doing. Yeah. I mean in all industries as well, just like regular jobs, but also magical yeah. workings as well. Yeah.
1: There's that anecdotal sense that magic and technology don't play well together, and it's, <laughs> it's it's true. Like if I have not like taken my technological things and like basically consecrated them, treated them the way I do any ritual tools. Things do not work, and it's not only because I am uh, a, a bit of a luddite and uh, a Gen Xer. That's like you know almost old enough to kind of be a. Boom. Well, I was raised by the same people who raised boomers, so uh, <laughs> there's there's not my boomer. So yeah, my semi, boomer sometimes
0: um, <laughs> for the listeners, she is a good <laughs> yeah. boomer. We we researched her. She's she's yeah, nice. It, <laughs> it, it's more just being aware
1: about attitudes that we absorb without realizing it because we're steeped in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a certain hesitancy toward technology is, is definitely something that I developed with stuff. So, so that aside from it was just like learning uh, where the limits are. And also, you know, that you're not sending the energy through the, through the actual wires, you're leaping distance, you're, focusing on on people and then you know the the black mirror the scrying mirror of your computer screen or your telephone is just one more vehicle one more focus for for magic if you are able to get the plasticity of mind to to think of it like that
0: Mm -hmm. it's interesting you brought this up like the the scrying mirror of of the zoom of the the laptop screen because I've been doing these interviews for this podcast in my closet. And without getting too far into it, a bunch of fucking crazy shit has happened since I started this podcast. Amazing synchronicities, the weirdest stuff. And I've already had a number of weird things happen to me, but it's just been condensed in this period of time. And a lot of people started to tell me, you got to really be careful with cleansing prior to your interviews and after because mm-hmm. that's essentially a portal to whatever is going on over there and I'm talking to a lot of people who work with the dead sometimes mm-hmm. they don't really know they're newbies so who knows what's hanging around and coming through possibly but I've had to really be careful with what how I I mean I wear the scarf I have like things that I wear every single interview because it it I have found that weird shit happens before and after these interviews, if I if I'm not careful. And I'm not always like the good weird shit, you know mm. what I mean? Mm. I imagine you're you're very good at grounding and cleansing at this point in your your spiritual development. At this point.
1: At this point. Although I have a hilarious story and I don't think that I've I've told it explicitly. So okay. so um, <laughs> House Keppuru, we, since 2000, we do uh, this, this gather, this sort of like open house where at first it was just like all the different vampire groups that intersected with our our beliefs and practices could come out and we did, you know, panels and workshops and everything like that. And over the years it grew to encompass pretty much anybody who does energy work. So it's House Keperu as the host. We always have a few classes that are us teaching our system, but the idea is to create a dialogue and a safe space for, uh, you know, as much diversity as possible. And, uh, it also, by the end of the night, Friday, Saturday, it is just a free for all of everybody playing with energy. Uh, and this was very, very true, especially in the earlier days. So trying, especially at the beginning to find a place for hundred, 150 weird queer strangely presented you know goth hippie whatever folk to have a small convention in ohio, <laughs> in, ohio? <laughs> in ohio in ohio in a, in a red county in ohio I, I might add a very very red county it was interesting to find places that we could actually like do this and, and have people not be like what the fuck is going on <laughs> so there was a place called the purple lotus which was uh short-lived but it was like this sort of like new age place there was a psychic who worked out of the back of it and they would do classes and workshops and everything and it was it was big enough for our needs at that time and this particular gather taught me that if people are doing a lot of energy work and a lot of experiment a lot of ritual and just sort of like theory crafting just because you picked up the cups and the cans of pop And the other trash that they left behind that was physical doesn't mean the room's clean Uh unless you also clear all the other stuff out. You might not be able to see it, but there's there's an effect there. So I don't know right away that we left a mess. I get to find out from the grapevine. So, So folks were like practicing, like they were trying different configurations of triumvirate work and different ways of like trying to like, you know, create like a whole bunch of energy and like see like how could they raise the energy in the room and like what sort of spirits could they like they were just playing just wild 3am theory crafting and then we were all tired and we were done we did closing ritual and we left the psychic comes in and we hadn't been in her office I was in the back part but like we we're in the main part and she walks through this and she's like what even so i don't know if anybody is familiar with the television show the ghost whisperer but it is based very loosely, very, very loosely off of the work of um, Marianne Winkowski, who lives out here. So they ended up calling Marianne Winkowski out to clear this space out because they were convinced that there were big portals that had been opened. I'm just like, we really just left a whole bunch of energy and I think a bunch of dead Cyprians are hanging out, but sorry. I mean, you could have just said something like you really could have just been <laughs> like, hey, come and fix this not like I feel really awkward and we're just going to pay $500 for the ghost whisperer to like shoo the energy out because so that's what you. they did yeah yeah, yeah Marianne Gw- Winkowski came in and 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 again like I I got to hear about it like second and <laughs> third hand and finally like I verified I'm like hey psychic person that I know one I feel bad because you could have just said hey what the f-? <laughs> like you could have just called me yeah And also, she didn't know what to make of it because it was just, it was chaos. I I checked in with the folks who had been doing stuff and they're like, well, we wanted to see if we could open like a gateway to have like spirits come through. And I'm like, did it not occur to you to try to
0: close that when you were done? (laughs) I (laughs) always wonder that. I'm like, why do we not close those? (laughs) It's at least just polite. Yeah, you know what? (laughs) That's a great story. I Well, I imagine you... uh, now after that you're probably anal about like making sure you clean up the space especially when there's all these newbies in there like neophytes messing around with energy and such
1: one of the things that we started doing is we, we do an opening and closing ritual which is way less about like invoking gods or goddesses and it's a lot more about creating energetic bookends for the weekend Mm -hmm. of sort of like syncing everybody up and creating space, creating boundaries within which we will actually do our work and then closing it down collectively and clearing it out for that. I really like that we had the inspiration to do that because it hadn't occurred to me. And I, partly because I was like, well, it's, it's such a mixed group and will people be okay with doing mixed ritual and, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm kind of a big iconoclast and I'm really big about personal sovereignty and like each person getting a chance to express things the way they want and without forcing anything on them. And sometimes running group ritual feels like you have to make some compromises about Mm -hmm. that. But really, really, truly, just for anybody listening, if, if you ever put on an event that's in person, especially consider doing a little ritual structure around that event if it is a magical occult or energy work event because those boundaries help everybody and then also like having the clear beginning and a clear end from whence you are you can then just you know detach and go back to your regular life.
0: Yeah, I think that's lost a lot in in rituals. I just started the TikTok journey and it is uh well I think it's a hilarious journey, <laughs> because it's so different than Facebook and Instagram. And I, I really love Gen Z. I think they're fascinating. And there's a lot, you know, there's witch talk, as I'm mm-hmm. sure you're familiar with. And so a lot of these young witches are coming on and they're like, Oh, my God, I invited something in and I don't know what to do. Or <laughs> I used labradorite or whatever, you know, some kind of very intense malachite that hasn't been polished or something. And they somehow brought something in and they're like i don't know what the fuck to do and so then the the elder witches of tiktok you know i never knew i would say this uh they come and they kind of like save the day but it seems to be like a very common thing that people just want to jump right into magic Mm -hmm. get in there make a big old mess and then kind of cry on the way out because they have an entity stuck to them or something
1: how i got into paranormal investigation in an investigation with air quotes was literally, I was the person that all the friends were like, hey, um, we did a seance and I think it stayed. <laughs> and could you come and check
0: this out? And like, maybe. Yeah, the dog's really scared. Please help. <laughs> Can you come over, please? Yeah. Please help us. So I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to loop back around to where I actually discovered you way before the blown bits of my brain everywhere after the psychic vampire codex. I watched Portals to Hell. And I love Katrina. She's a badass bitch. And yep. I was like so excited to see a woman, first of all, because there's so few women in the paranormal space. And I, I like the way they do that show because they often they also include not just the technological components of the paranormal investigation, but also mediums and other kinds of intuitives. And I just, remember my partner and I would watch, and we're both pretty intuitive. We'd be like, oh, they'd say, Katrina and, and Jack would be like, okay, now we're going to have that so-and-so. They just say, we're going to have a medium on now. And we'd be like, oh, we hope it's Michelle. Because we both just thought that you seemed the most authentic. Now, I'm not like bagging on anybody else on the show. They probably have wonderful gifts as well. But for some reason, the way that you dealt with energies seemed calmer. And we really liked that. Let me just say here again, like it's part of production. Production wants there to be like a jump factor. But what we liked about you is you didn't seem, now that I'm talking to you especially, to change your personality at all. You were just very chill. Oh yeah, there's that thing over there. And you were careful, I noticed to not call everything a demon. So that's where I discovered you. And and how did you get in to that whole world? You know, I think you started on paranormal state first, or maybe there was something even b- before that. What came before
1: that was, I sort of ended up by, by accident and necessity as the media liaison for the vampire community. So from like 96 onward, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which being I could go by my first and last legal name and be quoted in newspaper articles and on, on things. Because anybody in my family who was going to kick me out had already done so because I was too weird on every other level and, you know, queer also. So, like, there was nothing to lose. I didn't have kids who were going to get taken away. I didn't have a relationship or a career that was going to get tanked by being visible about this and just being like, hi, yes, yes. I have a degree, I am smart, and I'm also a vampire. And here's what that is. <laughs> so that had me working. I, I have lost count at this point of what documentaries I was on. Um I know stuff on History Channel, on A&E, on Discovery, something in Norway, some British stuff, like 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 if there was uh, somebody dressed in black who shot up a school, if there was somebody who murdered people and there was even like the hint of something occult and maybe vampiric, if they had a profile in vampire freaks and somebody wigged out about that and it was on the news, they probably called me. And if I wasn't directly on there, I was still a source for the reasonable, non-sensationalized answers. Yeah. The hardest one was the CNN headline news Which was like a live satellite uplink. So I I had like tiny sound bites to try to really dispel what they had been pumping up for like weeks of like this satanic panic, like vampire cultists have stolen somebody's daughter. And literally, I made a call to a friend who was a homicide detective at the time. They found the girl and she'd just run away from home because she was being abused. Anyway, so I, I was doing that. And how I ended up in paranormal television was partly that I already had the background in being on camera and being able to present myself in a reasonable way, even when I was talking about fairly fringe and extraordinary beliefs. Uh, I don't know that I would have been on Paranormal State if it was not for Elfie Music and Josh Light and my books. Elfie is, she was raised in Thalima. Her her father was Mm. an instructor. He was I think one removed from Crowley, like she's got a she's got a, a very significant occult pedigree that nobody ever trots
0: out. One degree from Crowley? Yeah.
1: Yeah, like like one student away. Like like wow. James Music was was a heavy hitter. And because of stuff that he had been teaching her, she ran across the codex that, that there's there's a lot of entanglement there and. Before they had Paranormal State, the PRS, the Paranormal Research Society at State College, Pennsylvania, ran a convention called UNIFCON. And it was, you know, various paranormal people. So, like, the Ghost Hunters guys were there, and let me see, the year that they had me come out to teach, it. they had Jason Hawes and, and Grant, and they had the Warren, well, Lorraine, because Ed had passed away, or it's, Bach. It's a who's who. But they wanted me to come out and talk about vampires and energy work. And I did. And that happened to also be the one that they were scouting them for Paranormal State, Mm. uh, unbeknownst to me. The first season of Paranormal State production and the director folks had no idea I was a psychic. TV land is weird and they don't always do what I would consider exhaustive research. Like It's very superficial. Do they see you on social media? What do you look like? is there like a buzzword in your biography they'll probably like seize on that and not realize that there's like all of these other layers Mm -hmm. so my initial work with it was as a researcher and an occultist i wrote articles for this tie-in blog called the paranormal insider uh, and they literally just assumed i was a book writer and uh, an occultist until they pulled me onto an episode and uh because of some interactions with chip coffee he was like you're psychic and i'm like well well yeah i mean i've been teaching energy work for 20 years now like what what, uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, i'm like who who missed this memo like i've got like eight (laughs) at at this point like how um and and really like i should have known better and also like they only know what you literally tell them and you have Mm -hmm. to tell them five times and like because nobody communicates (laughs) so they had me do a walkthrough and they were like wow that was really spot on yeah it's not a big deal like if i couldn't sense the energy of people and things around me i'd be a really bad psychic vampire like what would i do
0: (laughs) (laughs) you'd be like wow that's a lot of time i put in for nothing
1: (laughs) yeah so that's the whole vampire thing though really like if you are a psychic vampire you feed off of the energy of other people sort of implied in that is that you can sense that energy. And in what does that energy, carry, like energy carries uh, emotion, you know, the perception of a person, it can have a, a telepathic kind of quality to it. Like you can pick up little bits of memory, little bits of what people are thinking if you feed off of them deeply. And so, again, my identities are so thoroughly entwined that it didn't occur to me to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I work with energy and oh yeah, I, I pick all this stuff up. Paranormal state was also where I got to find the most useful tool I have for how I work with reading stuff. Like I, again, I I won't say that I'm I'm like a a doubter of of my abilities, but I intellectualize everything, Mm -hmm. and I, with that background in like psychology and everything. I know exactly how much we, you know, unintentionally cold read our environment and how much uh, we project our expectations on the world around us. So, you know, perception is a complicated thing. So if I walk into a place and somebody is like, hey, does this room feel weird to you? Like, I think the house is haunted. What are you picking up? Well, automatically now I'm like, does it feel weird? Mm -hmm. I'm looking for a ghost. Like there's all of this stuff rolling around in my head, and it's really hard to be a hundred percent objective about that. And that objectivity is really important to me, uh, not from a performative standpoint, but for my own satisfaction. Of like, is this accurate?
0: Yeah, it's like psychic in- integrity. I think um, it's, it's that you're you're making sure you're coming from a, as much of an objective place as possible. Yeah, and
1: and that's that's the thing. Is like I. Truly, my beliefs and practices are very deeply in the weeds of woo. Like <laughs> it's some weird shit for myself and what I grew up with, and just sort of like the the time and the culture that I was steeped in. It is essential for me to be able to trust that it's not only accurate, uh, but it's objective. It, it's not merely uh, me looking at a picture of a woman in a white dress. and like, oh, yes, I see. And, you know, not consciously remembering that I saw that. Right. So started using a blindfold.
0: You do that so. on Portals to Hell as well. And mm-hmm. I think that somebody on that show, or maybe I saw it on like a YouTube video or something, somebody explained that that's like your, your jam. Mm-hmm. You're like, I don't want to be told where I'm going. And I want to have the motherfucking blindfold. But tell me yeah. more. I love that Katrina...
1: Trusts my process to just let me do whatever I'm doing because it, technically it's not the safest thing. Like I have gone up and down like ladders and like haylofts in high heels in a blindfold at this point. Like I've been all over the place in in weird weird locations, and I'm sure <laughs> it gives somebody uh in insurance like just the cold sweats whenever I'm uh-huh. on any of them. But it's a little bit of a sensory deprivation. Um, I'm a very visual person. I'm also a little bit of a Sherlock Holmes, so it's really easy to walk into a place and just make a lot of conclusions about it if I'm seeing it. So to take that away uh, removes the likelihood that I'm simply drawing logical conclusions about the space. But it's also become a little bit of my ritual. Uh, It is how I have... A clear boundary between I'm just, you know, here doing my thing or I'm deeply in this moment trying to read everything in this space. So I I put the blindfold on and it kind of is an internal cue at this point to drop a lot of the shields that I normally navigate the world with and just spider out and pick up everything. Um, as as raw and as unmediated as possible.
0: And how does that, because I' watch you on the TV doing that. and I think um, dang, I really wish I could just like hop into her mind real quick and see and feel what she is feeling. because when you articulate to the audience what you're experiencing, it's, you know, it's all kinds of things, you know, there was, there's this person died right here. There's this inhuman entity that, I mean, it's all kinds of stuff. Some of them are, uh, seemingly, uh, intrinsically malevolent. Some of them are just kind of hanging out. This is their jam. And how, when you're going through that process, what, what is it, feel like what does it look like you know when let's just say just specifically like in human entities what does that feel like to you?
1: Often I will get emotional impressions and feelings first um, and as I kind of unpack that uh, visual images uh, some of which are more uh, like a like personal internal language pointing toward things so i i might get the sense of like a pop culture movie figure but that's my brain's like language for sounds like this but we don't have any context for what it actually looks like the way that i try to navigate because everybody always wants to know like is it a ghost is, is it an intelligent haunting like they right. want to know like it's residual okay is it a human or is it not a human my My yardstick for human versus not human is really like, it's psychology, like how does it feel? Uh, Human spirits have a certain familiarity with how their emotions present and how the bits of like experience and, and memory that comes through. It feels like a person. And in human things, uh, and and there's such a vast array of things that are not human, like, there's a lot of hubris for us to be like, oh, it's just, it's just dead people, right? Oh, oh, no, no, there's just, (laughs) (laughs) oh, it's all demons. No, really, it's
0: not. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one.
1: Yeah, well, people just don't have a whole lot of of words and and half the time i feel like i've got to make up words to like explain like there's these weird little things that aren't people but you'll find them in a lot of uh, abandoned uh, haunted places that have just like a lot of just stagnant energy that's like built up where they're kind of the spirit world equivalent of raccoons Hmm. they're they're not very big they just sort of like they're scavengers they're they're like you know critters they're, they're yeah there's critters uh, and, and I guess it's it was weird at first to go, wow, there's a whole ecology here. Like there's there are all kinds of things. But to, to go back to like how do I tell if it's inhuman, is it doesn't think like people, it doesn't emote like people. There is an alien quality to that. But I have to be very careful with the language that I use to convey that, because usually if I say alien or inhuman. Um, I know that a large portion of the viewer audience has been primed to go, Oh, it's a demon. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, just because it's not a human doesn't mean that it's evil. Just because it's not familiar doesn't mean that it's evil. Uh, you know, inhuman could be some sort of land spirit, a land white. It could be, you know, one of those things that's not people, but it just seems like, you know, native little scavenger thing, um, trickster spirits. There's, there's there's so many things. Uh, I find myself, like, kind of groping through my background in mythology and folklore to go, okay, it's closest to what we think of as a fairy um, from an Irish perspective, which, uh, ironically, like, the Irish idea of, of fairies and and the fair folk is so close to listening to Alomi's take on the djinn. Mm. I, I, really start to wonder if a we're, we're pointing toward the same type of beings or there was like some some cross-cultural dialogue there that we just haven't quite tracked down yet but there's so many things and most of them really have about as much interest in our world and our lives as an ant in your garden <laughs> or literally a moon where it might stumble into your house and if it find something interesting, it pull all the, the cupboards open and make a mess, but it doesn't belong in your house. It doesn't really want to stay in your house. Um and you are from two very different worlds. Most of the non-human entities have no interest interacting with humans, or at best they are tangential to our experience. Like we cross in a couple of ways and it's not even always comfortable for them. Um, we can be as
0: upsetting to them as they are to us. Right. We tend to forget that part because I think because we lack empathy as a species generally. And so we often yeah. are able to see how the other being might be thinking and feeling from their perspective, that it might be just as just as uncomfortable or more for them to be in our presence. But that whole thing that you said about how just because it's not human doesn't it mean it's evil or just because it's different doesn't it mean it's evil if that should be like the mantra for all of these shows all uh, sadly mm-hmm. it's not but w- I, we really have to get past that i think I, I i in my utopia that would be you know we we would think of all beings as not automatically evil if they're not the same as us
1: part of the perspective I bring with that is I'm someone who's been othered in like every aspect. You know, I, I think part of it is because you know I'm, I'm, I'm queer, I'm intersex, I'm a vampire. Like I already know, like just because it seems dark and spooky doesn't mean that it's bad. Uh, Cause I'm, I, I, if, if you saw me from a psychic perspective, I probably, I know for a fact that I look dark and spooky. I've, I've gotten the feedback. <laughs> like I, I can plot. Um, and, and like, there's, there's a very intense energy there and if somebody had a narrow view, they might take one look at me and go, oh, that's a demon too. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like there, there's a lot of intent there. Like I'm just, I'm just me being me doing my thing. So I assume the same Freddy spirit, unless they behave in some way that is aggressive or or actively malevolent. The other thing I think is um, paranormal TV has a really bad habit you know, as a sort of media effect of not only othering, but objectifying spirits.
0: Yes. There's a formulaic paranormal TV show thing happening that I'm kind of tired of. I feel pretty bored with uh, what's generally out there. There are some amazing shows. um, But overall, I'm kind of like, oh, here we go again. It's kind of the same thing. And that same, um, objectifying. And also I think there's a lot of impoliteness that I'm really not cool with. Mm. Um, a lot of the dude bro shows, not all of them, but some (laughs) of the dude bro shows, they get in there and they're like, tell me what you want to, you know, it's like, why not just like politely introduce yourself to this other being? I think that it's going to change. That's my sort of intuition Mm. about it. I think it's sort of where it's at the beginning of shifting into, a new wave of paranormal TV, I think. What do you think?
1: I think so too. I know that there is definitely an awareness that the sort of like ghost bro, that is the uncomfortable place where toxic masculinity and- The paranormal (laughs) meet. Yeah. But why? Not to forgive some of the worst offenders, but I do understand where like production is coming from. Yes. Uh, With with paranormal state, this was a great comeuppance. Like I truly, I think all of us who were on that show were naive in thinking that because production was putting this show on, that they believed this stuff, that this was something interesting to them. When the truth was paranormal shows were popular. They saw bottled lightning and they were like, we're going to do the thing. Yeah. And most of the folks who were like the actual like administrative, they didn't believe in any of it. Like they, the blindfold came about because they were like, we don't know, we don't know who's telling her stuff. Like, like how is she, what's her angle? How is she doing? Because they they just automatically assumed anybody who was psychic was faking it. Like, just had to be faking. Like, there was no such thing as a real psychic. They would get progressively weird about it. Like, they eventually had me, like, park half a mile down the street and, like, somebody would come out and mic me and they would, like, wait. Because they thought maybe I had really good ears and I was just listening in. And I'm just like, I... I am doing this because it gives me the best opportunity to like test my abilities and see what the limits of those abilities are and just kind of like get into this groove and have hands on experience. Like I've learned so much from doing it. I am not here to impress you. I don't care if I'm right or wrong. I just want to have fun, do the thing. So initially, a lot of the folks in production didn't really believe in it as, as real. And I've noticed a sea change where there are more folks who are. Becoming like the executive producers who are putting like the show together, like who are believers, who are experiencers, at least. Uh, Kindred Spirits is a good example of that, where they were able to maneuver themselves to a position where they have creative control. And they are people who are like hip deep in this. Jack and Katrina. Jack, this is something that he's intrigued about. I would say that over the course of Portals to Hell, he has become a paranormal investigator. But at first, he started off as somebody who was merely intrigued, and he was, you know, wise enough. Uh, I think, you know, as the son of Sharon Osborne, he knows that there are strong women, and it is in your best interest to mm-hmm. give space for them. And there's nothing wrong with giving them the chance to be an authority. Uh, That it doesn't take anything away from your strength or power as a man to listen to them. Mm -hmm. And I love that dynamic with Jack and Katrina. Me too. Because Katrina is 100% and is genuine and doesn't honestly get as much of of, of a do as I think that she's owed for all of the work that she's put in. Basically because she's a boob-bearing person on TV.
0: Hundred percent, couldn't agree with you more. Can't tell you how many conversations I've had about this exact subject. That same thing we we talked about Jack and how it was so cool that he recognized that. It's hilarious too because Jack is the wiener on the show. I mean, he's always <laughs> the one who's like, "I don't want to go in there," and Katrina's like, "I'm fine, I'm fine, I'll do it, I'll go in there," and she's always kind of keeping keeping everything calm and. And he's the one who's freaking out. And he, he seems so comfortable being in that position. Whereas in a lot of other paranormal TV shows, as you know, if there are women identifying people on set, they are often put in the position of... They're the the jumpy ones. They're sort of like they're to support the men who are doing all the technological things. They're not even mediums or part of the investigation really. They're just sort of stand-ins to be there to kind of round out the group. It's not always like that and it is changing some, but in some of the earlier ghost shows it seemed like they were just kind of there.
1: I think it's important to keep in mind that production from their perspective especially with early paranormal shows really saw this as an extension of the horror genre right and so the way they're as scream queens
0: exactly yeah that's that's very good point yeah and that brings me to the point too that these reality I put that in quotes TV shows are often often mimic horror as well like a lot of times nothing happens in these paranormal investigations and production is like, well, we got nothing. Let's pretend something happened. And I have a real problem with that. I I, I have a problem with that and all quote unquote reality TV. I just think it's misleading. And I have a very strong moral compass and I'm like, get out of here. Stop calling it reality TV. I think in this, in this area, because it's what I'm interested in so much now, I, it's almost like you can tell sometimes, mm-hmm. especially in the earlier shows.
1: Katrina and I, as, as Paranormal State alums, like we... We've seen how the sausage is made, and like one of the things that really worked for Paranormal State was it was a group of friends before it was anything else. It wasn't like a cobbled-together team. It wasn't that they had a casting call. It was like these were people who were tied and tightly together, which also meant that when production would sometimes push, because ghost hunting is it's like deer hunting like you're sitting for 3 hours somewhere where it's cold and you hear a twig crack and you're like was that a thing but <laughs> nothing like you may see nothing like right. and and that's that's how it goes and sometimes production would really they, they they wouldn't say fake it not until the much later seasons where they would like actually be like hey what we'd really like and we're like sorry no but they would be like well we need evidence we need evidence and when they got too pushy we would just have the solidarity to go walk off and wait them out because they hate it over time.
0: Yes, they do. Oh, there are a few <laughs> things they hate more. <laughs> yes. Smart. Uh, and that's really I, cool that you but, had that solidarity because that doesn't always happen.
1: I won't work with every team, but I know for a fact Katrina has it right in her contract. If ever she is asked to fake it. And, and we know to put this in our contract because of previous experience. If you try to pressure us for stuff like that, we fucking walk sorry.
0: That's awesome. People listening to this right now, you know, if, if this is your dream to be doing something like this, think about that, that you have more creative, you have more control than you think you do. And that's the thing, the production, the higher levels of production, they don't want you to think that you have control, but at the end of the day, the on-screen talent has all the power, really.
1: Yeah. And and I, you know, I, I know a couple of different teams where, you know, they, they they were so excited. This happens in publishing, too, where like you get a contract and you really want to like your, get your book out there. You're so excited that you got a contract. You just sign it because you're sure that you're not going to get another, another opportunity like that. And you unintentionally sign a lot of rights away and you do not get paid your worth. And you also have to make compromises. You find yourself beholden to doing things that you're not comfortable doing. But now that you've signed the contract, what else do you do? Uh, And and I know there were a couple of teams where you can recognize them because, you know, their shows had like maybe a season or two. And if you catch them online, they'll just like, they really don't even want to talk about it. Or they will just unvarnished, like just be like, oh, yeah, that experience was terrible. Where you're contracted and they, the way that the production company presents you is not how you really were.
0: Yeah, it does happen in publishing a lot. It's that feeling. Well, The whole industry is so saturated and well we could get into all this but basically you know you you feel like this is your moment your shot and you just you end up signing your life away and that happens in film all the time all the time yeah. especially with young green actors and actresses and they just come in and they're like I'm going to do this I'm going to be big and then at the end of the day they're like oh wow I got paid nothing and I literally mm-hmm. have no rights
1: Reality TV existed to get around things, pesky, pesky things like actors' guilds, screenwriters'
0: guilds. Yeah, no sag up your butt. Yeah. (laughs) I've sort of alluded to this over the past few months, but I had someone tell me this year that I am probably a vampire. And after reading Michelle's book... I think I could perhaps, maybe, be convinced of the three casts that Michelle explains, I would be a counselor. They're generally very empathic, and if I understand correctly, they actually feed off of people in a way that doesn't entirely sound like what we think of when we think of traditional vampiric feeding. Apparently, again, if I understand correctly, and Michelle might be like, you got it all wrong. But I think counselors are able to sort of suck up the energy in a crowd of people, for instance, refine that energy and then release it back into that same crowd. And if this process is unobstructed, it can actually make people in a counselor's presence feel more buoyant and better than they felt upon arriving to wherever they met the counselor. Now, I'm not committed to identifying as a vampire at this point, and maybe I never will, but I've always had a bit of a knack with people that way. And the more I thought about it after I read the Codex, the more I realized that the process that I go through actually does include something similar to what I would define as feeding prior to knowing anything about vampiric feeding, right? So I don't know. It's very curious the process, and if you read the codex, you'll understand this, that if you're meant to read the codex, you'll read the codex, and it will affect you in a particular way, and it will feel almost like a beacon of light pulling you to a memory of who you really are. That sounds really out there, but this is Follow the Woo podcast, and that's what I'm doing, is investigating the woo. I had a very unusual experience when I read the Psychic Vampire Codex. So maybe I am meant to be hanging out with a bunch of vampires, or maybe I am meant to dig into certain parts of myself and exercise muscles that I have but never knew what to do with, really, or just used haphazardly. And if the word vampire gets in the way for you, because I know it is a charged word, Remember, Michelle just provided a lens for people who are already feeling unique kinds of relationships with energy. I highly recommend reading The Psychic Vampire Codex, which is available wherever books are sold. You can check out another one of Michelle's bestsellers, The Dictionary of Demons. I haven't read that one, but I have heard amazing things, and it's she did a butt-ton of research for that book. I do know that. And if neither vampires or demons tickle your fancy, then I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. But those are just two of her dozens of books on the occult. So really, you can choose your own woo adventure when it comes to Michelle Belanger. Michelle also owns a haunted Airbnb that I'm dying to stay at. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. It's called Inspiration House, and it's located in Oberlin, Ohio, and has been featured in Business Insider, Vogue, House Beautiful, and even Netflix's The World's Most Amazing Vacation Rentals, Season 2. I mentioned that I purchased Michelle's shadow work class, which was great, by the way. I think you can get the recorded video on her website. And she has loads of other goodies like this available for her patrons on her Patreon. Per usual, all of those links will be in the show notes. And stay tuned for part two of this interview, which will be released next week on Wednesday, which just happens to be on Yule. Woohoo! We get even deeper in part two. We talk about the Nephilim and angels and vampires and all kinds of weird shit. Okay, I will keep you updated on my vampiric identity crisis as time goes on. I love you, my witches, weirdos, and vampires. Bye! Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a Woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, follow the